standing in honor of God's Word, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 again today and finish out this chapter. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 37, or 38. And the Word of God reads, They went throughout all, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray that You will bless the reading of Your Word. Holy Spirit, help me to preach this message and help Your people to understand it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So we're at a a place of transition in Matthew's Gospel here. And and starting today specifically, we're kind of transitioning. And so I want to take a minute and just draw attention to where we've been and where we're going. And that will kind of give us a little bit of closure um, uh, with, with the preceding chapters and then prepare our hearts for where we're going to be in the next several weeks and, and perhaps months as we go into chapter 10. Uh, and get our wheels just kind of turning about this because we're, we're shifting and we're going to be talking about something that is completely different than we've been studying up until this point. Some of you may know that Matthew's Gospel, one of the distinguishing marks of Matthew's Gospel is that he has chosen to use the time and the space and the ink to include five different discourses in their entirety in his gospel. Um, and, and some would even say that Matthew's gospel isn't a whole lot more than just those five discourses or monologues from Jesus with a little bit of narrative in between them to kind of make a story out of it. And in chapters 5-7, through seven, we studied the first of those discourses, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus started talking and talked for three chapters. And we spent a whole year walking through that sermon and expounding the gospel of the kingdom of God that Jesus preached. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we've went back to the narrative. And Matthew has taken a break and he's given us some narrative just kind of explaining the ministry of Jesus, His miracles and the signs and wonders that He did. And um, the goal, remember, was to see the authority of Jesus in word and deed. And so we've, we've done that. We've looked at Jesus and we've uh, seen that Matthew is trying to convey to his readers that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised King who would come and, and rule over the world through His Word. That's where we've been. Okay, now look down at your Bibles and look at chapter 10, verse 5. It says, These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them And then another quotation picks up there. And Jesus begins speaking, and the rest of chapter 10 
is the second discourse that Matthew includes in his gospel. And this second one is often called the missionary discourse or the disciples' discourse. And starting next week in chapter 10, Matthew's focus sort of shifts as he records what Jesus is saying here. We're not looking any longer at what Jesus was doing. We're going back to what Jesus had to say. And specifically, what Jesus had to say about those who would follow Him. Those who would be His disciples. Like I said, today is kind of the, the, the mortar joint that joins these two ideas. We've read His message in 5-7. through seven. Then we saw His miracles in 8 and 9. He said a few things about discipleship, but then last week we finished with two responses. And we finished with the question... You know, what is your response? You've heard his message, the message that Jesus preached. You've read eyewitness accounts of his miracles. And the question that we all have to answer when we, when we are confronted with the truth of Jesus is, you know, how do you respond? Will you submit and follow him, leave everything behind like Matthew did and follow Jesus? Or will you reject Jesus and say, you know what, that's, that's great. He seemed like a great man. I don't have anything against him, you know, specifically, but it's just not for me. What's going to be your response? Now, another way we could phrase this is, you know, do you spend time in prayer and studying God's Word and and seeking to try to find out where He is leading and then follow? Or do you just say, I'm a Christian, while for the most part just kind of putting the whole religion thing on the back burner um, except for a couple hours during the week. Now, I would hope that in a group like this, I'm looking out, I know you guys, I'm assuming that most of you would say, I have decided to be a follower of Jesus. I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but that's what I've decided. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. There came a point in my life when I realized that I'm a sinner. I've been confronted with my sinfulness. But at the same time, I saw the beauty of Jesus and His righteousness and I stopped relying on myself and I I cling to Him now. And I'm not perfect, but I'm following Jesus. Or another way we could say that is, I would hope that you would say, I've been born again. I am a disciple and a follower of Jesus. I hope that's your response. If it's not, come find me after the service and and we can talk about that. But if you're a professing Christian... There are certain things that you will do. There are certain things that Scripture teaches will characterize the life of a Christian. There are certain things you need to know about following Jesus that are very important. That that if you you don't take them into consideration, you may be uh, blindly following something that's that's false. Um, There are certain ways that you will live and act and think and and operate in the world. There's a a whole new worldview that you will adopt when you become Christian. A disciple of Jesus. And you, you have to know those things. And, and what we call that, when you become a Christian and then begin to act differently, we call that Christian sanctification. You're put on this, this uh, you could picture almost like a conveyor belt. And you are moved from moving away from God now to moving towards God. And so the rest of your life is going to be growing and studying and learning and progressing. And for some people, you, they just blaze through it. And for other people, it's like they're just army crawling, hands and knees, dragging their legs. But they're still moving that way. And that's, that's called Christian sanctification as the Holy Spirit comes inside and molds you and shapes you into the image of Jesus. And that's the goal. We want to be like Jesus. And someday we will 
be like Jesus, but he's he's working this in us. And this happens. The most most specific way this happens is by reading and studying and applying the word of God. Now, there are things you Christian community encourages this. Um, the sacraments encourages there are things that we do that will help this but the most important thing we can do is dig into the word of God and study it and when we learn things put it into action do what it says to do Jesus said in John 17 17 he's praying to the father sanctify them in the truth your word is truth and so we we come to scripture and Today's passage specifically is one of those passages where we get to read about Jesus, but at the same time we get to see into the heart of Jesus, and then we get to hear a command from Jesus that flows out of His heart as we, as we uh, see what He sees and, and understand the way He understands. And as we take these things and put them into practice, we are being made into His image. We will begin to look like Him. We will, as Scripture says, we will have the mind of Christ. We'll start thinking the way he thinks and we will resemble his character and his, his heart. Luke 6.40 says that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So we're, that's where we're going. We want to be like Jesus. Now, although we may, there's middlemen between us and Jesus as far as discipleship. Somebody may disciple you who's not actually Jesus. The goal is that they're making you look like Jesus. So each man is fully trained when he looks like his, his teacher and ultimately want to be like Jesus. So, so we see Jesus and we hear his message and we see his miracles and then we see responses. And we ask ourselves, what is my response? And the desired response, of course, is I believe he is king, he is Messiah, he is Lord. I will follow him. Everything else pales in comparison to following Jesus. And disciples, we just read, is not above his teacher. When he's fully trained, he'll look like his teacher. So if I'm going to follow Jesus, I want to look like Jesus and think like Jesus and, and do the things that Jesus did. And today's passage gives us insight into his character. So we're going to study it. We're going to apply it. And this will be a process of sanctification and discipleship. And this is good discipleship because this is discipleship by Jesus himself. As, he, as we read what he saw, and then what he had to say, and, and then what he commands us to do. Now, I've taken this passage and divided it up into headings that relate specifically to Jesus. You know, usually it's just verse, verse, verse. I'm, I'm not an outline person, but this just kind of worked out, and so this is what I did. I'm using headings that relate to Jesus. We're going to look at all those as we walk through this passage. Then we're going to take those headings, and we're going to say... We want to be like Jesus, so we're going to lay those on top of us. We'll turn the mirror around to us and ask ourselves, what do we need to do to look like this, to think like this, to, to move us along this process? That's, that's our goal today, so now you know where we're going. So look again with me at verse 35, and I have labeled this first point, the occupation of the Savior. The occupation of the Savior. Now, if you can come up with a better word that has T-I-O-N at the end of it, you're welcome to do it. I just try to make it go together. Verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. 
Now the first thing you should notice, as often as we've gone back and forth in this book, the first thing you should notice when you read that is that this verse sounds really, really familiar. In a hermeneutics class, we talked about the importance of noticing what we call bookends in Scripture. Just like, a, like bookends on a shelf. They stand at each end and they encapsulate something in the middle. They let you know that a, a section begins and ends within those bookends. They're kind of like brackets. Now, verse 35, you'll notice, is almost an exact repetition of chapter 4, verse 23. That says, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. Here, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Almost verbatim. This is brackets. We began a section, and we're ending a section. And this section was, first and foremost, to show us the authority of Jesus in word and deed, but kind of under that, we get to see what I've called the occupation of Jesus. His duty, His job. This is what He did during His earthly ministry. Now you can say, well, I thought Jesus was a carpenter. For the three years that He had an earthly ministry, this is what He did day in and day out. As He traveled and He preached and He healed on a daily basis. It says He went throughout all, Galilee, or went throughout all the cities and villages. Now, cities in Jesus' day... We're a lot like cities in our day. Now, they didn't look the same, but it was the same structure and the same type of people. Uh, they were centers for trade and commerce. They were busy and full of life and, and art and, and business and commerce and this vibrant social scene. The people who would have lived in cities back then were the same type of people who live in cities now. They were high-class businessmen, market workers, tradesmen, artists, fishermen, an eclectic group of people from all types of life who would thrive in a city. Then you move to the villages. And you can imagine that a village, it's, it's pretty simple, were smaller, less populated areas. Today we would maybe call them suburbs of cities or, or towns, little smaller places. Villages, villages would have been filled with mostly farmers, uh, gardeners, vineyard owners, people who lived off the land and needed big open spaces in order to, to make a living. Now, going back and studying the history of this, we find out that even in the smallest villages, there would have been a population of at least 15,000 people in every little village, at least. And in this time period, there were at least 200 of these cities and villages put together. So all in all, in this area around Galilee, living and thriving and working and, and just creating a society, there were somewhere around 3 million people that Jesus would have traveled around and, and, and seen. And Matthew says that he, he went throughout all the cities and villages. So He didn't only go to the bustling cities where these high-class businessmen with money were trading and operating uh, their businesses and, and, and teaching or, or, or commanding servants and running businesses and all that. He didn't just go to them. He went to the villages and met with the farmers and the, and the, the people of the earth. His ministry was far-reaching and diverse is the point here. He went to all cities and villages and it says he was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So now we get to the actual work that he did. He traveled around and when we look at his work, 
His ministry, like I've said several times, was first and foremost a ministry of preaching and teaching. Jesus was a preacher and a teacher. And he says he went into their synagogues. And we've talked about synagogues before. Synagogues were kind of like the church building of the day, except for there were a lot more because the Jewish culture was predominantly a religious culture governed by the law that God had given to Moses. And so a synagogue was not only a house of worship, but it was also like a civil building and a, and a courthouse. They would bring uh, court issues and, and cases and things into the synagogue to be judged by the priests and the interpreters of the law. And so synagogues were, were important in Jesus' time period. And just like in our day, even though an area may be small, synagogues were everywhere. Um, I'll read this quote from one of the, the Talmudic writings of the day. It says, In what place soever there are ten Israelites, they ought to build a house to which they may go to prayer at all times of prayer in such places called a synagogue. So for every, they would say for every ten people, build a place where they can get together and pray. So in villages consisting of at least 15,000 people, we can assume that there were a lot of synagogues and places for people to go and pray and, and, and worship and, and read Scripture and expound Scripture. And Jesus went to these places filled with religious people who gathered to worship and He taught them the Scriptures and He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom to those people. He taught them the good news of God's Messiah who would come and take away the sins of the world, who would rule over His people with a a rule and a reign of peace and freedom and, and prosperity. Jesus never assumed that, well, this, you know, because this area is just littered with synagogues and religious people everywhere, he never assumed that they were above being taught the scriptures. He never assumed that they didn't need to be, uh, need to hear the gospel or they didn't need someone to preach to them. No, he went straight to the religious people in their synagogues and he, he taught them. From their scriptures, he proclaimed the gospel. And then it also says that he was healing every disease and every affliction. So he's going around all these cities and villages, traveling all the time, goes to their synagogues. He's expounding the scriptures. In this time period, if a man showed up, and especially if he was a visiting teacher, he would get the honor of teaching the scriptures in, in that synagogue. And, and other men who were qualified, they would let them take turns teaching from the scriptures. And so Jesus is going to all these different places, expounding from the scriptures and teaching them and preaching. But he's also, as we've seen specific, specific examples, healing people who were afflicted and people who had diseases. Now, when it says that he healed every disease and every affliction, I don't take that to mean because of the, the word that's used here for every I don't think I don't take that to mean that he healed every single individual case of every disease that there ever was in this area. But rather, he healed every type of sickness and disease and affliction that there was. So we've seen him heal a leper and a paralytic and 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 deliver Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. He's taken away blindness. He's uh, open the mouth of the mute man by casting out the demon. There was not a physical affliction that Jesus could not eradicate with a word or a touch in an instant. He, he took care of them all. And this, of course, we've seen points to the future when he will eradicate all sickness, all disease, and, all, and especially all spiritual and, and, and uh, or all spiritual diseases and sin. 
If we go back several years ago, you guys probably remember that everybody had the bracelets that said WWJD, what would Jesus do? We're trying to go to school. And, and the point, of course, the point was, you look at this and you ask yourself, what would Jesus do if he lived in our culture? How would he live and act? How would he respond to my life? Well, here is your answer. This is what Jesus did. This was his duty or his occupation day in and day out. He traveled to bustling metropolitan areas. He traveled to these small town villages. He went into houses of worship. He expounded the scriptures. He preached the gospel. He did not consider any group too religious or too ignorant to hear his message. He healed all kinds of diseases from all kinds of people. Lepers, Roman centurions, women, demoniacs, helpless paralytics, synagogue ruler, a defiled woman. There was no group of people, no place, no disease, no affliction that Jesus would not minister to. That's the answer to the question. What would Jesus do? He would go everywhere to every group of people with every problem and He would minister to them, share the Scriptures with them, and preach the Gospel with them. And that was His earthly occupation. That's what He'd done during His ministry as He ushered in the Kingdom of God on the earth. So that's His occupation. The second heading in verse 36 is the vision of the Savior. The word vision is used all the time. I don't mean some idea of of what you want people to get on board with. This is actually his, His sight, His vision. What did He see in verse 36? When He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now we've seen... Every, every little bit, we see that there were crowds constantly following Jesus everywhere He went. When He went into the house with the blind man, it, it almost seems like the crowds just waited out on the front porch for Him to come back out after He healed the blind men. The crowds are always there, following Him everywhere He goes. And As a matter of fact, there are several times when He has to sneak away to get away from them, to, to pray to His Father. The crowds were always there. And many Times as we read about the crowds, it seems like they were nothing more than an aggravation. They're always there. They're, they're, their minds and hearts are almost never in the right place. They're all, they, they want free food. Or they want to see miracles. or They want to see another sign. They're in the presence of the God of the universe. And still, they're only thinking about selfish consumerism. What can I get? What can I see? What can I, what's the next thing you can show us? They're always looking for just another thrill as they follow Jesus around. And we read here that Jesus saw them. He had compassion. That's pity. He was concerned, really concerned about them. The word for compassion... Is, is connected, has a, has a root that connects to like your, your bowels or your intestines. So if you've ever had this emotional feeling that like just wrenches your guts and makes you uneasy and just uncomfortable about something, that's what Jesus felt. And inside of Him, deep emotional upheaval as He looked at these people that followed Him around for the most part not to worship Him, but just to see something cool or to, to receive a benefit from Him. So they were, they were selfish and they were ignorant and they, they, they followed Him all over the place and Jesus looked at them with the eyes of, of a good shepherd caring for these people like a, a good king 
or a good high priest who really cares about the, the well-being of these people. He wasn't offended by their ignorance. You know, these morons, I wish they would just leave me alone. They just don't get it. No, he didn't. He wasn't offended. But, but rather, deep down in his gut, it, he ached with compassion for these people. And the reason it says is because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Now, we've talked about and we read over and over in the Gospels about how the religious leaders of this day had created this system that preyed on the weak and the poor. And, and Jesus even says that you heap burdens on the people that, that they can't carry, carry and you won't even help them lift. Later, He'll accuse them of shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Jesus is addressing that situation here. That's why He had compassion. They were harassed and helpless. Or literally, they were flayed and thrown to the ground. And when He talks about the sheep and the shepherd, we get this really vivid picture here. He, he saw these people as like helpless, dumb, defenseless animals. I've said before, sheep have no defense mechanism. Sheep can't fight. Sheep can't even run away well. They're just, if they don't have protection, they're doomed. They have nothing. And Jesus sees these people as helpless, harassed sheep. And you can imagine these sheep, defenseless sheep with leaders or with shepherds who were supposed to be caring for them and supposing, supposed to be leading them and guiding them and helping them, but rather those leaders surround them like a pack of wolves, pounce on them, throw them to the ground, rip their skin apart and leave them bloody and dying and hurting on the ground. And Jesus sees the crowd this way, flayed and thrown to the ground, harassed and helpless by their religious leaders who had who had misused their position. They had no shepherd. They had no one who could lead them or guide them, who could protect them from wolves, who could nudge them back into the fold when they get too far away or close to a, a cliff or a briar patch. For years and years, this nation and the religious leaders, rather than leading them to God, had led them away from God into nothing more than mindless, dead tradition and like I said, for the most part, heaping on them burdens of, of, of works, righteousness, that they could not keep. They couldn't do it. And this broke his heart when he looked at them. He had compassion. He didn't look at them, first and foremost, with anger because they were sinful. He didn't look at them mainly with aggravation because they, they, they just couldn't get it. Or with aggravation because they just were continuing in this dead religion. He didn't just have apathy because you know what? It's their fault. They should have studied their Bibles. They should have worked hard. They wouldn't listen. And I just don't care anymore. That's not the way Jesus looked at the crowds. He was, he was wrenched inside down to his gut because these, these crowds were, were harassed and helpless like a defenseless flock of sheep wandering around on a hill with nobody to protect them, nobody to corral them back in, vulnerable to the attacks from any number of vicious predators. That's how Jesus saw these people. One commentator writes, 
Quote, what causes Jesus' deep compassion at this point is not the abundance of sickness He has seen, but rather the great spiritual need of the people whose lives have no center, whose existence seems aimless, whose experience is one of utility. That's sheep. Sheep have no structure, no order. They're not smart. They're timid. They, they, they frighten easy. They wander around aimlessly. And the physical conditions that Jesus has healed and taken care of in these chapters we've seen, they just point to the spiritual disease that these people suffered from. And this is what broke his heart as he looked at the crowds. His heart was broken. He had compassion. And that was the vision of the, of the Savior. That's what he saw. Thirdly, verse 37, notice the assertion of the Savior. The assertion in verse 37, what he says, we now get to hear Jesus speak from his heart about the situation. I, I think it's safe to say that as Jesus looked and saw these crowds and this compassion welled up and wrenched his guts, that it, it welled up emotionally and just spewed out of his mouth to his disciples. And this is what he says the harvest is plentiful. So he turns the analogy from sheep and shepherds to harvest and workers or laborers. And he now views the crowds as, as or the crowds of people in, in, as fields of produce. The harvest is plentiful. Now, harvest time was when the farmer would gather all of his workers together, all of his servants, and, and they would go out and they would gather in the crop that had been produced. They had already planted the seed and, and toiled the ground and, and, and worked on it and, and the rain had fallen and they had prayed for the crop and, and now it has yielded a produce and, and now it's time to go gather it. The harvest is plentiful. It's ready. It's time to go gather in all that he can from his, from his work. And with the spiritual analogy that, that Jesus makes here and, and the use of harvest elsewhere in the Gospels and in the Scriptures, I don't think that we have to assume that the harvest means only good harvest. When you gather in a harvest, there's always wheat and tares. There's always good fruit and there's weeds. And so what Jesus is saying specifically is that the time is now for the harvest to be gathered in. And this harvest is a large harvest. It's a big one. And that, I believe, is, is the focal point of these, these verses. We're not so much trying to determine exactly what the analogy of the harvest points to. You know, is it, is it Christians or non-Christians or is it both? Or The point is, this is a huge harvest. There's a lot of work to be done. This is going to take many, many man hours and a lot of sweat to gather in this harvest. But the problem, Jesus continues, is that the laborers are few. This is where the transition takes place. I talked about this paragraph being a transition, being mortar. This phrase is the, is the point of turning the axis, so to speak, of where this shifts. We've read about Jesus. We've read His sermon. We've seen His miracles. We've seen His authority. Now we've seen what He did on a daily basis. We've saw what He saw when He looked at the crowd and, and we're trying to feel what He feels when He looks at the crowd. Now, the focus shifts from Jesus to the work and the laborers. And this is the point of the passage. Get this. The harvest 
is much too large. And the laborers are far too few. There's too much work to be done and we need more laborers. We need more workers. That's the point. We don't need more field owners. We don't need investors. We don't need more seed. We need laborers. We need workers. We need bodies. We need people who are ready to sweat and work and roll up their sleeves and get dirty gathering in this harvest because it's big and it's time. That's his assertion. Harvest time is ready. It's mowing time. we got to get to work and gather this in. And we're going to need workers. We need people who can do this work. Because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Now, what do we do? We see what he says and we see the problem, but what do we, what's the first thing that we do? Do we, do we take a harvesting class or do we take the time to make some flyers and pass them out to let everybody in the village know, hey, it's harvest time and we're going to need some help over here? Or, or do we run home and, and put on our work clothes and our boots and our gloves and get ready? What, is, what do we do? There's a problem Jesus has brought up and the answer is in verse 38. And this I've titled the instruction of the Savior. Verse 38, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. That's His instruction. Jesus tells us exactly what to do. First and foremost, before you do anything, Pray. Pray earnestly. He says, therefore, or in light of the fact that the harvest is plentiful, and in light of the fact that the laborers are few, we need more. Pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. That's the instruction. Pray. Now notice... A couple things about this this instruction. He says, pray earnestly. Now this doesn't just mean that you mention to God while you're praying, oh yeah, and God, you remember the whole thing about the harvest and the workers, you know, if you could do that, that's what that would be good. When it says pray earnestly, elsewhere it could be translated, beseech the Lord. It means that you desire... To see it happen. That your prayer is you vocalizing what you want yourself. You have a a desire. You're begging and you're pleading. You're asking God in such a way that shows that you personally actually want to see this happen. And and, and don't act like you don't understand the situations when we pray for stuff, but really our heart's not there. It's like we're mentioning it because we said we'd pray for it, but honestly, the outcome doesn't bother us that much. That's not this. This is pray for it beg for it, plead for it, because that's what you want to see happen. First thing that you should do before you put your gloves on, before you tie your boots, is you pray earnestly. You beg God to send out laborers into His harvest. And then next, just notice this title. We're praying earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. We're praying to the Father And Jesus refers to the Father as the Lord or the Master of this harvest. It is His harvest. And that's why we're asking Him to send laborers into His harvest. 
There's already an owner operator. There's already a name on the building. The field is already under ownership. We are just asking him to send laborers into his own harvest. We're not looking for a change in management. We're just asking God to send laborers into his own harvest. He owns the field. And that's his instruction. Pray. Get on your knees and beg God to send laborers into his harvest. And that finishes chapter 9. Now, of course, Jesus is looking at crowds, not a field. He's looking at faces, not stalks. He he's, has compassion for souls, not grains of wheat. What we're seeing is the overflow of the heart of Jesus as He looks at these poor, harassed, helpless, lost souls of people who followed Him day after day and they probably really didn't even have a clue what they were following. And He had compassion. And He has a solution to the problem. Pray. He commands the disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest. And, and as disciples... We are receiving this command just as much as any disciple who's ever lived. The, the command is pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Now this is where the reality check begins for us because this command comes down to us, 21st century reformed American Christians in the Bible Belt as the haunting command of Scripture that terrifies us all to death. That's held us in bondage for centuries. That freaks us all out. As soon as we begin to think about working in the harvest, sharing the gospel, praying for God to send out laborers, or praying for opportunities to be a laborer, it scares us to death. Because see, there used to be a time, historically, um, and, and elsewhere in the world, it's, it's the same still, Christians were killed for their faith. It was illegal to profess anybody as Lord but Caesar. That's the weight behind when, when Paul says, if you uh, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, that's not just praying a prayer. That's going against the government and putting your head on a block. To say Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That used to be illegal. It used to be illegal to stand up against the Holy Mother Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and, and say, no, I'm not going to be a part of that degradation of the true bride. That's not the true church. And Christians were killed for that. And in those days, the church exploded and grew by huge numbers. Now, in China, where it's illegal to be a Christian. You've got underground house churches that are exploding and growing to the point where, if not now, soon there will be more Christians in China than there are people in America. Other countries in the world are sending missionaries to us. But in our day, here where we are right now, it's easy to profess Christ 
Because somewhere along the line, and I don't know where it came from, but somebody came up with this idea that being a Christian doesn't require anything. It's just a word of mouth thing. And maybe it goes back to, you know, if you confess the Lord, that Jesus is Lord and, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so all I got to do is believe a truth and say something. And that's all that's required of me. That's all that's needed. They say you can be a Christian and just blend into society. You can be a Christian and do all of the things that everybody else does except for a couple hours a week. That's, that has come down to us. And this lie has led us into a non-confrontational, non-committal, non-converting type of Christianity in which it's not necessary to evangelize. It's not a priority to make converts and then disciple them. It's not... Ideal to spend your life pouring into somebody else and helping them grow in their faith. That's, that's the, the, the faith that's been kind of passed down. And like I said in our small group this week, this week I think that all goes back to one main problem. And, and the problem is that this fake Christianity has tricked us all into thinking that the lost souls of millions of people, even in this state, really don't matter. It's not that big of a deal. We're, we're growing and we're learning and, and I'm, I'm, I'm really moving along this conveyor belt of sanctification and it's just hard for me to think about other people and, and invest in other people. And, and Christianity has become not much more than an event on Sundays, but nowadays, if it is more than an event, it's still just us huddling into our corners and, and shopping at our stores and buying our music and listening to our thing and going to our events as if there's ever been a Christian religion that wasn't about conversion and discipleship. We just huddle into our walls with our own subculture and just let the world go to hell. That's, that's kind of what we've, our, our faith has evolved into. And the truth is that that faith has never existed. That there is no Christian faith that looks like that. And if you subscribe to a Christian faith that says it's okay... To disobey the Great Commission? It's okay to put that on the back burner while I grow in sanctification? That's not the Christian faith. You are commanded to make disciples and at the same time grow and pursue Christ. And, and so the Great Commission comes to us. The, the one mission of the church, the one vision statement every church should have, go and make disciples, this is our job, He's given to the church. He says, go and make disciples. Now here, earlier in his ministry, he says, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Beg God to raise up people who will go out into the harvest. If you're not currently committed to praying for the lost in this area and around the world, and if you're not currently committed to begging God for people you know by name to be saved, then there's no surprise why you're not involved in evangelism. Because it starts here. It starts when your heart is consumed and, and compassion wells up in you so much that you just fall on your knees and you, you hope in God and you say, the harvest is too big, God. We need laborers. And the only thing you can do is beg and plead for Him to send out laborers. This is the easy part. The praying is the easy part. The scary part comes in when you find out you're the answer to a, a prayer, which we'll, we'll get to at the end. There, there, there's really absolutely no reason, and I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, but there's no reason why churches 
in Taylorsville can gather on a united front to pray against liquor by the drink in the county, but we can't gather on a united front and pray for lost souls and, and for laborers to be raised up. This, this is just a picture of our current obsession with moralism and, and life change over against the desperate need of the Holy Spirit to do something raise up laborers and send them out. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is saying, we can't do it. We can't legislate morality. We can't force people to live a certain way. We need you, God, to do something big because the harvest is too big and there are not enough workers. And it starts here by by begging God and pleading for laborers, for Him to raise up laborers. And so Jesus says, pray. And when you have a heart to pray, you will begin to be transformed. You know, somebody, I've heard it said that if you have a problem with somebody, like a personal problem with somebody, just pray for them every day. As often as you think about it, you pray for that person. And after a while, it'll be really hard to be mad at them. Well, the same picture comes here. You start praying, naming lost people you know by name, begging God to save them, or or naming places where nobody has preached the gospel yet, or or... Just begging God to raise up leaders. And when you begin to pray like that, and your, your life begins to be formed by a, a lifestyle of prayer for these things, you will be transformed into a person who begins to really care to make disciples and to share the gospel. But it starts with prayer. And like I said, if you're not going to pray, you'll never be an evangelist, ever. You'll never share the gospel if you can't even in the privacy of your own heart commit to Asking God to raise and send out laborers. Now, Jesus is our model. Correct? We want to be Christ-like. We're disciples. We're following Him. No, no student is above His master. Everyone is fully trained when He looks like His teacher. So we want to look like Jesus. We want to think like Jesus. We want to do the things that Jesus did during His ministry. So, so now let's take a look at all these things we just outlined and apply them to us. We're going to turn the mirror around and we're going to figure out how we can do these things. And hopefully we will be motivated to the same end that He was motivated to. Pray. So the first thing is we take up His occupation in a way that is as possible for us as it is we take up the work He had. Now, we can't go around healing every disease and affliction and preaching in every synagogue in Galilee, but how does this transfer into our society? He went to all cities, all villages, all the places where all the different types of people lived and ministered to every different people group there was and sharing the Gospel, teaching them the Scriptures. Well, we're commanded to do the same thing. Whether it's at work, whether it's at play, whether it's at the marketplace, whether it's in your own home, we're told to make disciples. We should all have our sights set on at least one person that we're at least praying for by name. If not meeting with and asking spiritual questions and taking a spiritual temperature and, and, and just kind of feeling out how you can help them, how you can pray for them, how you can maybe read through a book of the Bible together or read through another book together. Or if they're not Christians, share the gospel with. If you don't have at least one person in mind Ask God to show you somebody that you can meet with, that you, you know, you can name them by name, that you can at least begin to pray for. Pray for them every day. Every time they come to your mind, beg God 
to help you, whether it be just disciple them or maybe it's their salvation. That was his work. He went everywhere, ministered to people of all types, and we can do the same thing. The second thing is we can adopt his vision. Again, this is not just some idea that I'm pitching to you guys and hoping you jump on board. This is trying to see the crowds the way he saw them and trying to have compassion the way he had compassion. He saw them because they were helpless and harassed. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They had no guidance, no leadership, no structure, no purpose. Now when you take notice of the world, when you're just out and about and you're looking around and you see the way people are just going to work and driving and shopping and eating and all these things, when you see them, is the thought in your mind this deep, welling up conviction over their miserable condition apart from Christ? Because they have no one to lead them. No one's guiding them. Do you see that they're all wandering in helplessness? And they don't even know it. They're like sheep without a shepherd with no guidance, no purpose, no hope in the world. Do those thoughts even come into your mind on a a regular basis when you consider the lost? Because when Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion. It doesn't say when Jesus saw the crowds, He went back to what He was doing. It was an emotion that welled up in Him. And as Christians, that should well up inside of us. We should care for the world enough that at least we're emotionally affected. And at, at best, we're praying and we're, we're doing something about it. And again, like I said in our small group this week, I would venture to say that the reason that most Christians don't share the gospel and don't do these things is because we really don't care that people are going to hell. It really doesn't bother us because I got my ticket. I got my seat. That's all we think about. We don't care enough. We don't have compassion. And, and the Reformed tradition is accused of this all the time, historically. They say, if you believe that God is sovereign over the salvation of His people, and you believe that God chose a people before the foundation of the world, then it's no wonder why you don't share the gospel. We just, You guys just sit back and let God do His work. And that's a terrible distortion. A terrible error. And, if, and, and I pray that we never fall into that. Because not only is God sovereign over salvation, but He's sovereign over the means. And He says that Nobody will be saved apart from the gospel, by hearing the gospel. I'll read this from Romans 10, which I read a couple weeks ago. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Beautiful are the feet that they walk in the dirt with. They're beautiful because they bring the good news. Beg and plead for God to raise up dirty feet who will go and share and be beautiful feet because they bring the gospel. No one will be saved without hearing the gospel. We can't sit back and say, well, God's chosen His people, so they're going to get saved regardless. No, they will not be saved without hearing the gospel. And so we have to See the world as Jesus saw it and have compassion. Like He had compassion. Thirdly, we have to hear His assertion. And understand it. We have to understand that the harvest is plentiful. It's ready. It's not the seeds are ready. It's not we need to go water. It's ready. The harvest is ready to gather. Ready to be gathered. But it's big. 
There's no way that we can do it on our own. It'll never happen. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. Even the entirety of Axis Church cannot do it, even in this small town, on our own. It can't happen. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're, we're not even the biggest church in the town. We can't do it. We have to work and pray and beg God to, to send out labors. We have to work with other churches, other ministries to proclaim the gospel. We, we're, we can't do it on our own. It's too big. It's too big of a task for me. It's too big of a task for you. We will need help. And then lastly, we just have to obey His instruction. Obedience is key. If we will just obey, we got this. Obey His instruction. Jesus commands His disciples to pray to God to send out laborers to the harvest. And we have to take this instruction seriously and pray earnestly and beg that God will raise up preachers and teachers and laborers who are ready to roll up their sleeves and get sweaty and dirty in the work of sharing the gospel. He commands us to pray, not because God is reluctant and we have to get God to change His mind, but because we are so reluctant and we need a work of the Holy Spirit to urge us to do this. And if you're going to obey this command to start to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out harvest, harvest or laborers, then you have to be prepared to accept that you might be the answer to your prayer or to somebody else's prayer as they beg God to send out laborers. See, that's the scary part. That's where we get nervous. See, we don't know for sure the greatest missionary that this town has ever known might wake up sometime around lunchtime or early afternoon today with a bottle of pills on one side and a girl that he just met on the other side headed headlong into hell with no clue. And the answer to your prayer to send out laborers might be you just reaching out to that person, building a relationship and sharing the gospel. They become converted and minister in ways they never imagined. The greatest missionary this place has ever known might be lost right now. And it's our job to go find him or at least pray. And when we start to pray, we will begin to, to work and to do this. Or perhaps one of the answers to your prayer for laborers will be answered when your children grow up and they would rather, instead of Get a, go to college and get an education and get a career, they come and they want a plane ticket and a backpack to, to go on the field. And you have to, to give them a hug for the last time on this side of eternity and say, go. That might be the answer, but if we're not praying, we're just being disobedient. We don't know what the answers are. He just says, pray. And if we're not praying, we're being disobedient with the easiest thing to pray. So, are you praying? Number one, are you praying? Write it down, make a note, get it tattooed on your arm. Beg the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Another question, are you the answer to somebody else's prayers? Are you a disciple who makes disciples? Do you have that other person in your mind that you could just meet with, at least talk to? Because Jesus has commanded us to pray. 
We've heard His message. We've seen His miracles. We've seen responses. We have decided for ourselves what our response is. He says to plead and beg for harvesters or for laborers to go out into the harvest. And next week we're going to be able to look at the type of people that Jesus uses in this harvest, in this work. And just in closing, maybe you're thinking, where's the motivation come from? I just don't feel motivated to share the gospel. Or, or I don't feel motivated to pray. I know I should. I know I should want to pray for lost people. It's just not there. I don't have a compassion in my gut. It doesn't make me sick to think of all the countless millions who don't know Jesus. Where's the motivation? Well, the motivation should come from the gospel. Think about where you would be had God not reached down and scooped you up out of the dirt. Think about where you were when God saved you. Not because you were useful. Not because you would make a good laborer. But because He's gracious. And He's merciful. And He's, he's holy and good. We were all sinners. Undeserving of grace. Headed for hell. Just the same as any of the worst drug dealer or prostitute or child molester you can think of. We were all there headed for hell when God saved us. We were His enemies. And if that grace doesn't motivate you to at least begin to think about the others who need grace, then I would, I would worry that maybe I've never experienced that grace. Because that kind of grace, just it pushes you. You, you feel it and you, you know it. And so, so, so maybe job today is to just meditate on the gospel and, and just think real good and hard. Spend some, spend some good long hours just thinking about where you would be without Jesus. And it'll make you miserable and sick. But then you can remember that He did save me. And there are a lot of other people with wives and husbands and children just like me. They're probably not even as bad as I was. And I want them to be saved too. I want them to experience what I've experienced. And so so the motivation comes from the gospel. Earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. As it has gone out, I pray that You will bless it. Lord, we, we believe and affirm that Your Word is, is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. We beg You that it would just pierce through our hearts. That it would wrench our insides with this truth. Lord, don't let us shake this. As we go to lunch, as we go about our days, don't let us shake this truth. Lord, we do ask that You would send out laborers. I pray that You would raise up laborers from our own church here that would go and, and work and gather in the harvest. Lord, I pray that You would raise up laborers from other churches that they would go into the harvest and, and gather people. Lord, send us out to find those who are not yet laborers so that maybe in generations to come there will be numerous more laborers that we would grow by multiplication and, and there would be multitudes of laborers to go out into this harvest. Lord, send laborers into big 
bustling metropolitan cities. Lord, send laborers into small rural towns that seem like they have way too many churches already. Send laborers to unreached people groups like the the Chippa people of India. Raise up leaders who will learn one of of at least 20 different languages that that they use and will share the gospel with them in their own language. Lord, send laborers into this town in Taylorsville. Lord, send us workers to get sweaty and, and dirty in the harvest. Lord, raise up our children to be laborers. Help us to be diligent in training our children and, and teaching them Your truth. Help us to hold on to them but, but to hold them loosely so that when the time comes to, for us to release them, that we would be uh, sorrowful and yet rejoicing. That it would be sad and yet it would be, it would be a happy time. Lord, prepare us for that. God, I pray for Matt Morgan at Escalate in, in Hickory, that he would... He would be able to teach and that you would raise up laborers from his church. I pray for, for Shannon at, at Reflection and, and Paul Colbertson at Bridge 42 as he prepares to, to take another church. Raise up a, a leader who will lead that church there. For Tim Brower in, in Statesville as he shepherds a flock. I pray for Will and Winston at 121 that in all these congregations and, and many more, you would raise up laborers. To go out into the harvest and to work. God, I, I lift up to you church in Granite Falls who lost their building. And they have several hundred people who don't have a place to meet for a while. Lord, I pray that you would just um, use this time to glean uh, and, and, and sort of maybe prune that, that flock to the size that it needs to be. By getting rid of people who were just comfortable in a building. Father, we, we bring things to You. So many things that um, we can't do on our own. There, there are too many requests to mention. We've got health problems in our church. We've got financial problems. We've got work. Lord, we, we come and we just fall on our knees and we beg You because we can't we can't do this on our own. And so I pray, Father, that You would take these requests and that You would honor them in the way that will bring You the most of glory. And Lord, my biggest request might just be that You help us to be okay with whatever brings You the most glory. And I pray that You would just keep us safe as we, as we leave today and bring us back together this evening as we uh, worship through preaching and, and uh, the Lord's Supper. In the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.